Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I've been writing in a blog for a while, and you can check that out too. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Wow. (laughs) It has been a crazy last week. Today is July uh, 26th, Monday, July 26th, 2021. I was out of town last week. I was on vacation and I was in a place where I really didn't have reliable cell coverage or internet access. So I wasn't really focused the way that I normally am on the events of the day and how it folds into my work and my thoughts on big time college sports. But this story about the University of Texas and then the University of Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 to join the SEC has implications that really tie together a lot of the major themes in this podcast and really, I think, put an exclamation point on how this perfect storm has been so unpredictable and so powerful. We are indeed in the midst of the most transformative era in the history of college sports. I've spent a lot of time in my blogging and in my podcasting laying out historically how the business of big-time college sports has evolved. That really begins in earnest in the television era in the 1950s. And then you had some other things coming into place, and there were several other perfect storm eras. That era from 1945 to 1956 was so important. And then you had the Board of Regents era. And now we have what may be defined as the Austin era. And there's been a lot of talk about name, image, and likeness. I'm going to get to that a little bit. But name, image, and likeness is going to be a footnote historically in this because there really isn't much there there in my judgment. But what's happening right now in the way that big-time football and the traditionally powerful football interests and conferences are flexing their muscles is going to result in a shakeout in the market that I think has a lot of people panicked. I've watched some of the news coverage. A lot of these articles I'm reading are just breathless and they're panicked and they're, oh my God, this guy is falling. I don't think that's really true. I think there are going to be some unintended benefits to this shakeout. And we'll, we'll talk about that as I uh, share my thoughts on what I think this means. But I really want to look at this in a way that's a little bit different than the present sense panic that we seem to be caught up in. So there will no doubt be some crazy stories coming out and some unexpected alliances and there's going to be a lot of head scratching going on and a lot of speculation, a ton of speculation. That's great for the uh, sports media marketplace. It's a fun thing for fans, even though it's also going to cause an enormous amount of consternation in this grand game of musical chairs. Remember, in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes, I talked about the Keith Donovan book, The 50-Year Seduction, about the television era in big-time 
college football. And this would be a great time to go back and read that book. It's a really important book in understanding the history of the uh, television era in the context of big time football. And really, that's what this is all about. The, the entire college sports marketplace revolves around big time college football. And there are a lot of questions about some collateral products, namely big time men's basketball. And then you have all of the non-revenue interests and the smaller school interests. And those will all work themselves out. But this is a football show. It always has been a football show. Donovan's book really uh, gives a nice history of that, really starting back in the early 1950s. I went through that in three separate episodes that all under the title of The Prisoner's Dilemma. In my first Prisoner's Dilemma episode, episode 13, I used Donovan's book as a template for discussing a lot of these structural issues and how they have played out historically as we were heading into the aggregation of power that became the Power Five conferences. Again, that was all football driven. Donovan's book ended in 2004. So it takes us up really into the BCS era which was the precursor to the Power Five and the CFP, what I believe is the logical endpoint of the Board of Regents decision. And that was the case in 1984, where big-time football, Southern football, and that's an important part of this too. The Southern theme is alive and well here, and I'm going to talk about that historically in addition to some of the other big-picture structural issues. But this is a not just a football show right now. This is a Southern football show. And the Southern football interests, what are now really the SEC, Texas and Oklahoma are certainly in that group, and I view them as part of the Southern football family. I see that as a good fit for the SEC, quite frankly. But this is really a, you know, a Southern football show. And when you look historically at some of the events, really going back to the 1940s and the Sanity Code, it was the Southern schools that were the Mavericks. They were the Confederates, lowercase c. And they're always causing trouble. <laughs> There's a part of that story that I just find fascinating and entertaining. And it is history repeating itself. When we look at these important milestones, starting back with the seven sinners who opposed the Sanity Code in 1940, uh, 50. And those were characterized as Southern schools, even though there were some Northern schools in that group of, of seven. But they openly defied the NCAA. So you have this history of the Southern schools openly defying the NCAA. I'll walk through that as one of the themes in my analysis of where this may be heading. And I, I guess I'll also say this as to all of my observations here. It's almost impossible to predict how this is all going to shake out. And I can't tell you what these conferences are going to look like, whether there will be three or four and what alliances may form. I, I think that some of those issues can be informed by history. And there are some powerful regional dynamics that have been at play throughout the history of big-time college football that I think are still in play. I talked about those in the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes. So I would urge you to go back to episodes 13, 14, and 15, and you can see really how those issues were framed as we headed into this Austin decision and how the NCAA and the Power Five, who were in lockstep in the Austin case, and that's important to remember too. The Power Five really weren't going a, a separate way from the NCAA in terms of their litigation strategy or really their strategy in Congress to claim the Iron Throne of college sports regulation. So what's happening now is just a part of a dance that the NCAA and big-time football have been doing 
really almost for 70 years. This is the the latest chorus in the song. And yeah, Donovan referred to the first wave of conference realignment as a game of high stakes musical chairs. And that's a good description. And the same thing's going to happen now, no doubt. Um, this may take a few episodes to really talk through and bring together some of these themes that I've been talking about now or and writing about for well over two and a half years. But first of all, I'm not going to get caught up in the me- message board uh, prognostication. I'm not going to speculate on what the conferences are going to actually look like on the backside of this, what they should be named, and who got uh, left out, and what the consequence of a particular school's inclusion or exclusion from the big-time college football sweepstakes means for that institution. There are plenty of other forums where that'll be good fodder for discussion. I want to look at this structurally because that's the way that the decision makers are looking at it. The beginning point in any discussion about the business of big-time college sports at the structural level involves the relationship between the NCAA and the powerful football interests. Over the last 70 years, that has been a very complicated relationship that has been based in large part on some conflicting interests that could never be reconciled under the big amateurism tent that the NCAA tried to pitch. The interests of big-time college football operate so far outside of the rest of the college sports marketplace that trying to harmonize the NCAA's broader goals and its association-wide interests with the interests of big-time football has been a sham all along. So going back to what it is that the Power Five got from the NCAA and what the NCAA got from the Power Five is really central to understanding what has happened, why the connection between the NCAA and powerful football interests is as weak as it has ever been. It's not completely cut yet, not officially, but it is as weak as it has ever been. And it's important to understand why. We got a preview of that on March 31st, 2021, when the uh, U.S. Supreme Court held oral argument in the Austin case. In my first Prisoner's Dilemma episode, that episode 13, I played a clip that was an exchange between Justice Sotomayor and the NCAA's attorney, Seth Waxman. This exchange was one of the few times in the entire Austin litigation where the NCAA spoke to the truth of its business model. It was very oblique. The NCAA was pursuing its business interests in a a disguised way. In that litigation, and one of the things that I pointed out throughout my blogging and my podcasting on Austin, is that the NCAA was very good at disguising the tension, the ever-present tension that has existed since the 1950s between the powerful football interests and the NCAA. When I say NCAA in this context, I'm talking about the national office. I'm talking about from Walter Byers to Miles Brand to Mark Emmert, that national office that is really carrying the water for big-time powerful football interests and the national office that is fighting like hell and has fought like hell all along to try to preserve its bureaucracy and its access to the big piles of money. 
And now just a real quick refresher on what Austin was about in a nutshell to put into perspective Justice Sotomayor's question and Seth Waxman's answer. So Austin involved a challenge to NCAA limits on education-related benefits, and the district court agreed that those limitations uh, violated antitrust laws and crafted a remedy that took the NCAA completely out of the picture with respect to providing this very narrow set of education-related benefits defined in the order and instead turned them over to the big conferences, turned the control of those benefits to the Power Five. And the judge said, look, You don't have to provide these benefits, but you're the only one who can. We're benching the NCAA. You guys can do it because the NCAA has proven that it's not going to do it. And its refusal to lift these compensation limits violates antitrust laws. So the conferences could have provided all the benefits, some of the benefits, or none of the benefits under the district court's order. And that order was upheld in its entirety by the Ninth Circuit. So I just want to read this excerpt from the oral argument and then make a few comments on it. Justice Sotomayor asks Waxman, I thought that the district court's injunction only prohibits the NCAA from limiting education-related expenses. It does not prohibit the conference from doing so. So if your priority is maintaining amateurism in college athletics and you and your members think that increasing education-related benefits will undermine the spirit of amateurism, why don't the conferences impose those limits? And Waxman says, I think this court gave the answer to that question in Board of Regents, which is a classic example of a prisoner's dilemma in which national agreement is the only solution. There is no doubt that what has happened with respect to the pay of college coaches and other professionals will happen if conferences or individual schools are permitted to remove these restrictions. That was the only peak that we got throughout the Austin litigation as to what the true issue was here. And that is who gets to decide. That was the fundamental purpose of the NCAA's Iron Throne campaign to achieve a supremacy as the only regulator in college sports. And they were going to do that by eliminating all external regulators, federal courts, state legislatures, and any other third party that might come in and undermine their authority to regulate at a national level. That is so important here. And what Waxman was saying, in essence, is that the, these prisoners, the NCAA in one cell and the Power Five in the other, if they turn on each other, then there's going to be chaos. That was how he was describing the aftermath of Board of Regents. And remember, Board of Regents was this Supreme Court decision in 1984 in which the powerful football interests achieved their financial freedom from the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. And on the backside of that, it just opened up the college football marketplace wide open and really was the template for what we are seeing now in the evolution of big time college football. And when Waxman says that national agreement is the only solution, what he's referring to is this overarching compensation limit that fixes the cost of labor at the value of an athletics scholarship. That was the glue that bound the NCAA and the Power Five. And now, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision in Austin, that glue appears to have been dissolved. 
One of the things that's interesting about Austin, when I first commented on it after the opinion came out on June 21st, I was very careful to limit the scope of the impact of that decision because the ruling was very narrow. And because the athletes' attorneys made this strategic decision to abandon their claim that challenged all NCAA compensation limits and instead was limited to trying to get the Supreme Court to uphold these limited category of education-related benefits, I didn't think that the reaction from in-system stakeholders was going to be as, as profound as it has been. In fact, it appears to me that the in-system stakeholders, the Power Five and the NCAA, view Austin as really a dagger in the heart of amateurism. Or at least it sure looks like that because the NCAA is already repositioning itself to try to be relevant in the college sports marketplace. And when I say college sports marketplace, I'm talking about the money sports. We haven't talked about basketball here, and basketball is a footnote in this discussion right now. But that's the NCAA's sole source of revenue. And I'm going to talk about the way that the NCAA is repositioning itself right now. Some interesting things happened last week as well, including the launch of a new NCAA website that may as well be titled the Mark Emmert website. But I have some thoughts on on where they're headed in that positioning. But I think it's going to be geared towards preserving their bureaucracy. And the only way to do that is to hold on to the March Madness money. And the basketball discussion is going to get interesting because it's going to be subordinated to these football interests and how the market shakes out there. It remains to be seen if the important basketball interests are even going to have a seat at the table. And that's just, again, consistent with this historical dominance that big-time football has played in shaping college sports and the marketplace for college sports. And uh, two episodes ago, I, I talked about that interview that Mark Emmert gave on July 15th in which he talked about completely dismantling the college sport marketplace as it has existed really for the last uh, 70 years, in my judgment. I'm going back to the 1950s. But that was a profound shift in uh, messaging and in strategy. And I think it may also have been an overreaction to the Austin decision itself. So I think it's possible, one of my thoughts on, on how this is playing out, is that the Power Five were already in the process of reimagining the big-time college sports marketplace and looking at another shakeout within the Power Five to further consolidate the most powerful and valuable football products into a, a new set of interests. However, they wind up expressing themselves and whatever they look like on the backside in terms of conferences and, and all that stuff. But I'm not so sure that this is being driven exclusively by Austin. It's obviously being influenced by Austin. But from a purely legal standpoint, I just don't think that the Austin ruling in and of itself warrants the way that the Power Five and the NCAA have positioned themselves. So again, it's one of these shifts in the structure of college sports. It's really impossible to analyze completely right now or with any confidence because there are obviously some important backstories here that are not in the public record and they will reveal themselves over time. And one of the things I want to know is when did the SEC really start courting Texas and Oklahoma or when did Texas and Oklahoma start courting the SEC. We don't really know. 
my guess is that, that this may go back a little bit further than you think. And when you look at some of the reactions by other Power 5 interests to this, what appears to be now an imminent departure of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, you get the sense that some of these issues have been on the table for quite some time. And the commissioner of the ACC, Jim Phillips, he just took that job a couple months ago. But he made some comments to the effect that the ACC had the intention of courting Texas and Oklahoma. Again, we don't know whether there were any formal discussions, but these powerful football interests are always looking to solidify their power, their market share, their access to money, and their market dominance. Yeah, the Austin decision is very, very important, but I think there may have been an independent movement here that may go back further than is apparent right now. We'll see. So I don't want to get too far ahead of my skis here. We'll just see how the realignment plays out and who's talking and who's not. I think there's going to be enormous incentive for people to keep their cards close to their vest because there's all kinds of backdoor wheeling and dealing. And again, I just want to emphasize that Donovan's book gets into all of that in the initial phases of realignment post Board of Regents and really talks about the extent to which these decisions are really business decisions. One of the things I'm going to talk about in connection with this big shift is who's calling the shots. That's been a theme of this podcast and a theme of my blogging. It's not clear at all right now who is in charge. And that is just reinforced again and again and again. You have uh, certain university presidents making statements that are really posturing to cover all scenarios, but they understand that these decisions are consequential, at least in how they are perceived by some of their important stakeholders like alumni and boosters and their corporate partners. And of course, they always want to be running with the best. That's what we do here in America. And if you get relegated to the junior varsity, that's not a good thing. My last episode was a reprise of where are the university presidents and chancellors? And nobody really knows. But this notion that they're going to step up and act with integrity and say, well, we want to stick with our promises and our contracts and and our general person's agreements, and we are colleagues, and you hear all that happy malarkey. But when push comes to shove, they are going to follow the things that big-time college sports always follows, and that higher education has come to follow. It's money, power, prestige, social currency, loyalty, and money, 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 and media exposure, and media exposure. That's what this is all about. When this first came up, I just laughed to myself because in the first wave of conference realignment and as it started to come into shape in the late 2000s and early 2010s, you had all these conferences trying to contract around what is happening right now. And that is through these grants of rights provisions that I'll talk about at some point. And they were basically designed to make it financially painful, if not impossible, for a school to leave a conference and do exactly what Texas and Oklahoma are doing. Now, it's going to be real interesting to see if some of these folks that get left behind, for example, the Big 12, I don't know what their conference contract looks like or what their grant of rights provisions um, look like. But in a typical grant of rights provision, if a school leaves a conference, the value in that product follows 
them and the original conference, in this case the Big 12, would have a financial claim to revenue that was supposed to be this great deterrent. And I don't know how that's going to play out when Texas and Oklahoma are going to depart. There, again, all these things will play themselves out. But I don't think that's going to be a barrier to this conference realignment wave. The only remedy that the Big 12 has and the remaining Big 12 universities would have is to sue. So there could be a sue-a-palooza, but that could be throwing good money after bad to fight a what might be a losing battle. And those provisions, those grant of rights provisions, have not really been challenged in these college sports contexts. So you got uncharted waters here. You don't know if you're going to win. You're going to spend a boatload of money trying to hold on to something that you've already lost. So I think in terms of organization, you know, podcast episode organization, the way I'm thinking about this now, is I'm going to, in this episode, go through some of the broad historical influences that shape the various interests in this new wave of conference realignment and look at how they've traditionally interacted with each other. And then I'm going to look at what the Power Five conferences look like and talk about the overall stability of those five conferences. Conferences, I think you're seeing some self-serving propaganda in the sports media. A lot of these stories are coming from ESPN, and I'm going to talk about that maybe in another episode. But boy, ESPN is up to their eyeballs in conflicts of interest because they have a direct financial stake in the most lucrative components of big-time college football. And some of these ESPN articles have references to ESPN sources. And I'm wondering, well, gosh, who are those sources? ESPN attorneys, ESPN executives, ESPN people who are in way deep into all of the important products that define the big-time college football marketplace. So they have the exclusive deal for the college football playoff. I don't know how far that extends, but it's a multi-billion dollar deal. They have regular season programming for the SEC and the ACC. They own 100% of the SEC network, and the independent network. They own 100% of the ACC independent network. They own... The Longhorn Network, which is Texas's product, and Texas is such a valuable product, it is much like Notre Dame in that it has a legitimate independent market value from the rest of the college football marketplace, including the conference products. So how does that play in? So if you're ESPN, you got all kinds of conflicts here, but you also have enormous power. And I'm guessing that the decisions that are being made behind closed doors and at the conference tables have ESPN interests well represented, and they are going to have an important voice in deciding what this new marketplace looks like and how it's going to be structured and what it's going to be worth. So just a word of warning, be careful. You don't get any disclaimers on the ESPN website on these talking heads on ESPN that they, they are just in head first with big time college football. And then I think in some combination in another episode, I'm going to talk also about what this may mean for the NCAA. That's important here because as this plays out, I think some of the NCAA's recent posturing is a little clearer to me at least, and where they see themselves and what they may want going forward. And then I think it's really important to look at what this all means for 
the big time powerful college sports interests in the United States Senate. Because remember, all the rhetoric from the NCAA and from the Power Five was pretty well aligned, just like their litigation strategy in Austin was, to these the singular purpose of eliminating external regulators. I think they still share that in common because they both have the same interest there. They don't want to move forward however the pie is sliced up going forward. Neither the NCAA nor the Power Five or whatever the new alliances look like, they don't want to be subject to antitrust liability. They don't want to have state legislatures coming in and telling them what to do. They want absolute control of the marketplace, free from accountability and free from liability. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they position themselves in the Senate. You can rest assured that there are going to be hearings. And I think that what's happening right now, and and because of what I think may be an overreaction to Austin, that may reveal really a pre-existing tension that was going to play out regardless of the ruling in Austin. I think you're going to have some senators saying, wait a minute, we don't really know what the heck's going on here. We don't know what this market is going to look like. So why are we going to be in the business now of granting any extraordinary protections and immunities? And I think this really goes back to what Seth Waxman was saying in this need for kind of a national agreement on some basic principles. And that national agreement had been built around the compensation limits that were the fixed wage price at the value of an athletics scholarship. Without that, if you're proceeding as if that is unattainable, that national compensation agreement is at such a risk after the Austin decision that you can't really be cooperating to preserve that. What are you cooperating on? That's going to be really interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking about that in another episode. But I think it would be a mistake to assume that because you have this obvious separation now from the NCAA, that the NCAA and Power Five or powerful football interests aren't going to be presenting a united front on what they want from the United States Senate. So let's talk a little bit about where the various interests sit right now and how their current position is reflected by their history. And if the past is prologue, then what we have here is really a uh, replay of some dynamics that have been in force for decades. I mentioned the sanity code earlier. When you go back to these massive structural changes in college sports that really began in the 1950s and the beginning of the television era and the beginning of the NCAA's acquisition of meaningful enforcement jurisdictions. In 1951, the NCAA, for fortuitous reasons, became a power player. And I talk about that in the episode in Pay for Play on the period 1945 to 1956. And I go through all of the things that happened in that other perfect storm that really gave the NCAA some power. And then remember that the NCAA from 1951 to 1981 had an ironclad monopoly on televised football. So it was in the driver's seat. It was the power player. That monopoly was challenged by the College Football Association, which was a group 
of football interest comprised primarily of schools from the South. You also had some big-time independents. Penn State was part of the CFA. Notre Dame was part of the CFA. But you had a basic rift between the Southern football interests on the one hand and then the Midwest and Western interests on the other. That was a, a really deep divide. It was a Hatfield and McCoy type of relationship between the Southern football interests on the one hand and then the, the Midwest and the uh, West Coast interest on the other. So you had the SEC driving the train on changing the face of college sports. They just went right to the belly of the beast and challenged directly the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. And it was an audacious power play. Talk about a high-stakes poker game. The Board of Regents litigation was it. And the CFA pulled their interests to the side of the rest of the NCAA. They didn't leave the NCAA. They really weren't threatening to leave the NCAA. But they were threatening the core of the status quo. And the status quo of the NCAA in its earliest iterations, beginning in the 1950s, uh, you know, of the modern era of college sports, ran really through Midwestern interests. And the Big Ten and the NCAA were really joined at the hip early on. And when Walter Byers became the NCAA president in 1951. He came from a Big Ten culture, and early on, the Big Ten and the NCAA shared an office, and then they separated out. But from the very beginning of the modern NCAA and the television era, and the NCAA with meaningful enforcement powers and, and jurisdiction, there was a, a sense of mistrust between the Southern schools and the Midwest schools. And the schools on the West Coast, the 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 Pac-12, I'm just going to refer to them by their current formation, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, were pretty much reading from the same page, and they tended to be status quo NCAA friendly. And then you had these other conferences, particularly the SEC, which was the cradle of Southern football, viewing themselves as a little bit out of that mainstream. When you look historically at the the events that where change was really forced, it came from Southern football interests. And that was true with the Seven Sinners, and that's what really was a death knell to the Sanity Code, and then the capitulation to the full and open athletic scholarship, which Walter Byers said was one of the three most important events in the history of college sports, because the NCAA abandoned any conceptualization of amateurism, and the athletic scholarship was outright pay for play, and that was a Southern movement. And then you had the CFA coming in the 1970s. I think it was formed in 1977 in the midst of big-time football interests, segregating their interests under the NCAA umbrella to gain more power and also to gain control of NCAA governance. That, again, had a, a Southern flavor to it. And the CFA, undoubtedly, the College Football Association and then the Board of Regents suit, was without a doubt a Southern football initiative. And the name plaintiffs in that suit, the CFA itself as an independent organization, wasn't the, the plaintiff in that case. 
Two of its members were the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma. So <laughs> Oklahoma's just coming back home, baby. They put themselves out there and they litigated that case and they won and they won. And on the back side of that was enormous resentment on the part of Walter Byers. And he's a Big Ten guy. So you had the Pac-12 and the Big Ten basically at war with the Southern football interests over the formation of the CFA and over Board of Regents because they thought that Southern football was trying to upend college sports and they were going to leave the NCAA. So in the aftermath of that, you had even more distrust between these regional interests. And that played out through the post-Board of Regents era. And remember that after Board of Regents, the CFA came out with its own television package and they were selling it to networks and in the turmoil and chaos that resulted after this suppressed monopolistic market from 1951 to 1981 you had a glut of football content there was a disorganized market and for some of the CFA members they were actually making less under the CFA contracts post board of regents than they made with the NCAA contracts pre board of regents so it took a long time for that market to to play itself out. And I've made similar observations with this new nil market, however it winds up being defined. And we don't know yet. You know, a lot of that's going to be influenced on whether and what the Senate does when it comes back. But there's always market disorganization after a fundamental change in market behavior that's a result of the release of market forces that have been suppressed. So it took a long time, and then the CFA overplayed its hand. It got fat, happy, and greedy. It thought it was just going to walk all over the NCAA. And that didn't really happen because the market simply wasn't ready for the new glut of content. And one of the things that just came to mind when I first getting fat, happy, and greedy again, are they getting ahead of themselves here? And is the law of unintended consequences going to come back to bite them in the butt? It's one of those, be careful what you ask for situations here. And there's a lot that is unknown and a lot of forces at play that were not in play in the 1980s, particularly the influence of congressional intervention and the role of states regulating in in college sports. So we'll talk more about that in another episode on, on this new realignment, but that's important here. So you then had the CFA really falling apart because of its own greed and arrogance. Almost before it got off the ground, you had important components leaving the CFA and Penn State and Notre Dame pulled out pretty quickly. And then the SEC pulled out. When the SEC pulled out, it was done. The CFA was a dead letter and it disbanded in 1997. So that was the very early wave of the of conference realignment. And then it was also the beginning of some attempt at the structural level to reconcile the conflict between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 on the one hand and then the Southern Conferences on the other. That happened in the 1990s when the Pac-12 put the Rose Bowl in play in the major bowl structure. And that was a big concession, or at least the the Pac-12 viewed it as a 
big concession. And the Rose Bowl was king. It was the prize of all of the big bowl games. But that started the beginning of a complete reorganization of big-time college football, and that was done really through the Bowl Championship Series, which was a successor to the Bowl Alliance. And really, it was built around money and access to the big bowls. That carried forward through conference realignment into the Power Five and then into the formation of the college football playoff. When you look historically at how those interests worked themselves out, really the two big actors there have been the Big Ten and the SEC. When you look at the college football playoff participants, and the first game was in 2015, they've been dominated by the SEC, the Big Ten, and then Clemson. I'm not going to say the ACC, I'm going to say Clemson. And that's an important single element in this whole big picture. And actually, Clemson's a good segue into a discussion about where these five conferences sit right now, the Power Five conferences. And again, those are the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. I'm going to rank them in two ways. One is in terms of historic stability from a football standpoint. Remember, all of this conference realignment, the first wave that started in the 1990s in earnest, really, and then finished in 2012-ish, And then what's happening now, driven almost exclusively by big-time powerful football interests. And the goal of conference realignment in that first wave was to aggregate football power under a conference banner that would allow that conference to go out and compete at the highest levels in the marketplace for football programming. The panic that ensued in this game of high-stakes musical chairs was driven around the fear that a school was going to get left out of a conference. It was going to be able to go to ESPN or go to Fox or go to ABC or whoever they could go to in the big media marketplace to have access to money and exposure. It was getting your school on TV as much as uh, you possibly could from the exposure side and then being associated with a conference product that was going to be raking in the money, both regular season money and postseason money. That's what this was uh, all about. And when you look historically at these five conferences, you really uh, can see that, that there are some big separations in terms of stability. So I'm going to rank these five in terms of long-term stability. This again goes back really to the 1950s. So the most stable conference has been the Big Ten. When you look at the schools it acquired through conference realignment, for the most part, it got stronger and didn't compromise the identity of the conference. They added Maryland very late in the game. They added Nebraska. And when you look at the list of the current Big Ten, the only school that really sticks out as an outlier is Rutgers. In this new conference wave of realignment, people are talking about schools that are being added to conferences. Nobody's talking about schools that conferences might want to get rid of. And if you're the Big Ten, you probably would be okay getting rid of Rutgers. But the Big Ten has been very stable. And right behind it in stability is the SEC. The core group of SEC members really have defined college football in many ways. And the Big Ten would argue with that. But I think in in the 21st century, SEC football has really dominated. In the realignment 
realignment wave, the first realignment wave. They they got into the Texas market and they picked up Texas A&M. They brought in South Carolina. That was a great fit because that's really, I think, in the meat and potatoes of SEC territory on multiple levels, not just geographically, but in terms of philosophy and, and the climate and culture of the university. And it's the flagship state university of South Carolina. Uh, let's see, who else did they bring in? Arkansas, um, not sure that that was a perfect fit. And Missouri, not sure about that. But the SEC, the core, its football core is solid and about as good as it gets in, in college sports. Then the third on the stability list, I would say, is the Pac-12. And the Pac-12 really, in conference realignment, didn't have to do a whole lot. They added Utah, I think, and that's a little bit of an outlier. But most of these schools are a logical fit. They're all big-time schools and, on paper, have potential to be football powerhouses. They've underperformed, and that's been an issue for the Pac-12. And I think that's one of the reasons they wanted new leadership there. So you've got the Big Ten, the SEC, at the top of the pack, undoubtedly. And then there's some meaningful separation below that. And then in terms of stability, you have the Pac-12. And then I would say that the next, and these are two really unstable conferences in my judgment, the, the ACC is the fourth in stability. When you look at the moves that they made in this first conference realignment wave, it completely changed the identity of the ACC from a basketball conference to a football conference. And prior to all the crazy realignment, you really had Clemson as the only legitimate football power. And most people in this neck of the woods have viewed Clemson as really more of an SEC school in terms of climate and culture and their football product. Boy, the the SEC, I think, would love to have Clemson. And that's not outside of the realm of possibility here. When you really look at how these conferences sit, how they came into existence during the last realignment, and you look at who the ACC added. I'm going to just put an asterisk next to Florida State because they added Florida State in the early 90s, and that was huge. That completely changed the character of ACC football because Florida State was dominant then, and those were the Bobby Bowden years. He was uh, right up there with uh, Notre Dame and Penn State and all the conference big-time powerhouses. That really lifted all the boats in the ACC harbor from a football standpoint. But then after that, when in this real musical chairs conference realignment that got crazy in the mid-2000s. They added uh, Boston College. They added Miami. They added Pittsburgh, Syracuse, Virginia Tech, Notre Dame. Not a full member. They were independent for football, but uh, part of the ACC for all other sports. And then at the end of the realignment period, they added Louisville and lost Maryland. But that's a massive change for the ACC. It changed the climate and culture of the conference, the identity and brand of the conference. And it was still a very good basketball conference and performed very, very well after this realignment. But that's not a lot of stability there. And you don't have a history of stability with these schools. And some of these schools didn't want to join the ACC. <laughs> that's another component of all this. And, and I think that's why this stability analysis is important, because you have some schools that didn't really want to join a particular conference, but they were afraid of being left without a seat when the music stopped playing. So they jumped in. 
And then the least stable, the Big 12. Why is that? Because the Big 12 didn't exist before conference realignment. The Big 12 is essentially a conglomerate of what was the Big 8, and that had the Heartland schools, and then the Southwest Conference, which had some of the Texas uh, schools. But it's important to note that the Big 8 and the Southwest Conferences no longer exist. When you look at these five conferences and you just tune out all the ESPN self-interested <laughs> characterization of where these conferences sit, I think that the Big 12 is done in my judgment. I don't see them holding on. And you're going to see these schools trying to join another a more stable conference. And again, there's, it's impossible to predict how that will play out. The ACC, again, ESPN is trying to prop up the ACC and they're portraying them as solid and, and all that stuff. I don't see that at all. I see some schools that uh, really don't have a football product that is that strong that got brought in for for other reasons, I think, during the first conference realignment. The other thing about the ACC is that among the Power Five schools, it has by far the most private schools. Of the 65 current Power Five schools, 53 are public universities, and 34 of those 53 are flagship state universities. So it is built around big state schools. And I think that this realignment is going to be built around big state schools. You have some really weak sisters in the ACC from a football standpoint. And some of that uh, goes back to the original ACC formed in 1953. You have Wake Forest, you have Duke, you have the newcomers, you have Syracuse, you have Boston College, and they've all had their moments in college football, but they are not really running with the big dogs. So I see the ACC as ripe for the picking. If you're the SEC or the Big Ten, the Big Ten would love to have Notre Dame. I think the Big Ten could pick off Notre Dame, and that would be a huge blow to the ACC. You could see the SEC even going bigger and just looking at this as on the backside as maybe a three-conference type of market. They would love to have the Florida schools. If you're the SEC, wouldn't you love to have Florida State? Wouldn't you love to have Miami? That would be a nice pickoff. And of course, UNC is, is really a prized asset in any conference realignment because they've been a sleeping uh, giant here. I think under Mac Brown, they're making a comeback. They're going to be a national player and the SEC would love to have them. And I, I think the Big Ten would like to have them. And there was talk back during the original conference realignment that UNC was on the Big Ten's radar screen. And then let's see what other products there. Obviously, Clemson's the crown jewel, and that's a perfect fit with the SEC. So we'll see. But a lot of the initial framing of these issues, I think, doesn't really hold up well under scrutiny through a historical lens and through a conference stability lens. And then let's look at the other thing. Let's look at what these conferences, the Power Five conferences, are doing financially. And I've talked a lot about this chart that I put together from trial exhibits from the Austin case that looked at uh, conference revenue and conference commissioner salaries between 2010 and 2018. So just to give you a sense, I don't have the updated numbers, and honestly, the last two years may not be very predictive because of uh, the unique market circumstances that were COVID-related. So let's just use 2018, and I think this is 
pretty recent enough and good enough information. But when you look at revenue, just conference revenue, and again, this doesn't include the institutional revenue. So in the ACC, for example, this doesn't include Clemson's home game, ticket sales, concessions, all its institution-specific marketing efforts. This is just the conference revenue. So this would include the conference TV packages. This would include the bowl games. This would include CFP money and everything that gets brought into the conference pool and then split up and then divided up back out to the individual member institution. So in 2018, and I'll rank these from top to bottom, the Big Ten had conference revenue of $760 million. Number two is the SEC, who had $660 million in revenue. Number three is the PAC-12, and they were at $495 million in total conference revenue. And then number four is the ACC at $465 million. Then in last place, and they are in last place by a lot, is the Big 12 at $373 million. And I think a lot of that value came from Texas and Oklahoma. I don't know what the deal was with Texas and the Longhorn Network through ESPN and what the revenue sharing was, if any, there. I, I don't know. I haven't gotten to that level of detail. But just in terms of overall conference revenues, you have the Big Ten and the SEC and then everybody else. The Pac-12 is an interesting number three because they still make a lot of money. They're close to $500 million, but they've underperformed. But they have the potential to do a lot better. It'll be interesting to see if this new commissioner um, brings them up a little bit. But the Big 12 and the ACC are second fiddles there, or fourth and fifth fiddles. <laughs> Just looking at these numbers, I don't see the ACC in a position of strength here. A lot of commentators have said that the ACC network deal that they they did with ESPN, where ESPN owns 100% of the network, really uh, wasn't a good deal for the ACC. And it extends into 2036. So that's the other issue here. A lot of these contracts are long-term contracts. Being locked into a contract that's not super advantageous isn't a good position to be in in a realignment effort and the craze of recruiting schools and trying to retain schools. And I think for the ACC, it's going to be uh, a retention problem. For the Big 12, it's going to be, can those other schools, what's left of the Big 12, are they going to be able to find a spot somewhere else? And I don't know. Again, because this is football-driven. People are saying, Kansas is left behind. Wouldn't you want Kansas for their basketball product? Yes, but this, this isn't about basketball. We'll talk about that once all the football interests are satisfied. So just looking at that from a stability standpoint and then from a financial standpoint, you got the Big Ten and the SEC uh, in the driver's seat in terms of acquisitions. You have the Pac-12 in a pretty stable position there. So my initial thought, and again, uh, this gets in, into prognostication, and I haven't been very good at that, quite frankly, <laughs> and you don't want me picking your, uh, your tournament brackets. But my initial instinct in looking at it historically is that you are, may see the Pac-12 and the Big Ten sort of viewing their interests as similar in terms of combating Southern 
football and being allied against Southern football or in direct competition with it in, in this new realignment wave. And I've heard something about a Pac-12 ACC alliance. I don't see that. And I see that the football schools that are the most coveted there are Southern schools. And I think if one school, Florida school or, or Clemson, is even flirting with the SEC, I think the ACC could fall apart quickly. Again, who knows? And as I mentioned earlier, Notre Dame would be a prize get for the Big Ten. And if that happened, I don't know if that in and of itself would necessarily be a death knell for the ACC because Notre Dame was only halfway in. And in all honesty, they are really an outlier in the ACC footprint. But that certainly wouldn't be a good thing for the ACC. And then, of course, if you have a a school in the South bolting for the SEC, that would be a real problem for the ACC. But that's how I see it. And, and I think that would be consistent with these structural rifts. And another thing in terms of this rift between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 on the one hand, and then the Southern interests on the other, that played out again during COVID. Because remember, and I wrote a post on this called the Ghosts of the College Football Association. But in the fall football decisions, you had the Big Ten and the Pac-12 kind of reading from the same page, being more allied with what I think the NCAA wanted to do, which was to hold off on football. And then you had the Big 12, the SEC and the ACC saying, screw it, we're going full steam ahead. (laughs) And that's consistent with the historical pattern. And it's consistent with this maverick spirit among Southern football interests. And then a more status quo approach with the Big 10 and the Pac-12, at least in their alliance with the NCAA and the more nationalized interests. So that, again, that played out just last year. So I think those dynamics are still in play. I think they're still relevant. I will be curious to see if if I'm correct in my hunch that that may influence how this new realignment unfolds here. And then the other really important element of this is this grand long-term battle between the haves and the have-nots. And that has expressed itself most directly in the threat of antitrust exposure and the threat of antitrust litigation. You have to go back and look at all of these major shifts in the college sports marketplace and in the structure of college sports and antitrust laws have played a pivotal role. And you go back to Board of Regents, that was an antitrust lawsuit challenging the anti-competitive features of the NCAA business model and its exclusive television contract for college football. And then a lot of people forget that immediately after Board of Regents, when the CFA was entering into its exclusive contracts with networks and excluding schools who weren't in the CFA, then you had concerns that the CFA was engaging in the same kind of anti-competitive monopolistic behavior that the NCAA had been engaging in. They just switched roles there. It really wasn't a question of the market behavior. It was a question of who was doing it. And then coming into the bowl championship series in the 1990s, and I talked about this in my pay for play episodes, you had Congress getting involved because the have-nots were being left out of these lucrative bowls and they were pounding the antitrust pot. And they were saying, look, we're being frozen out here. We think there are antitrust implications. And there were. Congress didn't get involved, and the uh, have-nots didn't wind up suing the haves, in large part because the haves threw them enough table scraps to keep them happy. 
Then into the early 2000s, you had that renewed. In 2003, you had a new round of hearings in Congress with the have-nots saying, look, we've had this BCS thing for five years now, and you said we were going to have a seat at the table, and we don't. So now we're going to demand a seat at the table. And Congress put some pressure on the big-time football interests. But you've had this antitrust threat lurking out there. You would think, particularly in light of the power that the antitrust option has had in these athletes' rights suits, which really are much different, you know, the antitrust issues that are playing out now in conference realignment are institution to institution, conference to conference, have to have not. But that antitrust threat is real. I think what you're going to see in this shakeout of the market is these new mega conferences trying to find some way to ameliorate the antitrust implications of what they're doing. Because I'm, I'm guessing their antitrust lawyers are, are at the table as they're discussing all these potential scenarios. But that could be a powerful limiting factor here. In the current formulation of the college football playoff, um, you had the Power Five bringing its next tier of conferences, the Group of Five, who really had been priced out of the uh, talent acquisition market by the Power Five through autonomy in 2013-2014. And I talked about that in my episodes in Pay for Play on this pivotal year of 2014. And they brought in the Group of Five and threw them some crumbs. Really, I think, is antitrust immunity because they didn't want to get sued by the have-nots. What's that going to look like in the, in the new realignment? Because now you're going to have a group of have-nots like what's left over in the Big 12, what may be left over in the ACC, that is a much more powerful group of have-nots than the group of five was. How are these new mega football powerhouse alliances, whatever they look like, how are they going to retain their competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market, but also position themselves so that they minimize the likelihood that they're going to get sued under antitrust theories by the have-nots? All that. has got to be on the table here. You've got some of the most powerful influences in the big-time sports entertainment marketplace who are going to be deciding these issues. But the antitrust issue is a really important one here. That's something I'm going to be keeping my eye on as we move into this next round of realignment. That, That, of course, also ties into what this new football alliance looks like and we're going to have really an NFL type of product in terms of size and flavor and how they wind up competing uh, amongst themselves uh, on the field and off. And, And then for those schools and conferences that are in the have category, you're back to some of these same fundamental issues about cooperation. Are we better off in this prisoner's dilemma metaphor cooperating to get what we need to preserve the league and the market and and all these things that are uh, crucial to what will be essentially a professional sports league. There won't be any amateurism camouflage that we can rely on as we have historically. Are we going to abandon the principles of amateurism? What's our relationship going to be to the labor force? Is there going to be collective bargaining? Are we going to be able to maintain a nonprofit status? And, And I don't know how that could happen realistically, given what that market would look like. 
And then you have the some of the same issues in terms of congressional involvement. And is that group, that elite group of schools and that product, are they going to receive preferential treatment and get some kind of antitrust protection? Who knows? But all of those issues are going to have to be addressed. And I think they're going to be important elements in the, uh, in the conversations that are happening behind closed doors. We're probably not going to know really what's happening there. And unfortunately, Fortunately, because of the way that the sports media marketplace has evolved and the way that it interacts with the rest of the sports enterprise, you're getting biased information. And this really goes back to some of the three undeniable truths I began my podcast with. Those are that almost everything that we know about big-time college sports comes from people who have a deep and direct financial interest in it, and almost nothing is as it appears to the general public. It is always about the money, the money, the money. Those limitations on understanding the business of big-time college sports will be operating in full force in all of these discussions about conference realignment and the information that makes it into the public domain. So I'm painting with broad brushes here because this story will will tell itself, but it's going to take a a long time. And some of these issues may not be uh, resolvable in the short run, and this could be a several-year process. There have been some comments to that effect. But I think it's really important because what's happening right now really is redefining what we understand as college sports. And it's going to test a lot of these theories that NCAA and the Power Five, ironically, have relied upon for decades now that increased professionalization equals decreased consumer demand. I don't see that happening. So a lot of these myths may just be put to bed, and that would be a good thing, and that would be a very good thing. All right, so with that, I'm going to close this uh, episode out, and then in the next episode, I want to talk about what this means for the uh, NCAA and what it means in the Senate. And those uh, two components of this new sports world are really interesting. They're important, but I I think there's some interesting uh, dynamics that might play out here in the short run, because I think the NCAA and Power Five, as I noted earlier, they're going to have to decide whether they are reading from the same page on what they want out of the Senate now, and whether that has been compromised in any way by this new wave of conference realignment and the prisoners are turning on each other. (laughs) Everybody's diving for cover. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and close it out with that. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.